Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good friends, good to see you, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, last year we were all worried about all the bad things that might happen were Republicans to take over control of the House of Representatives. And once they did take over, it didn't take long for us to discover it may turn out even worse than we thought. As their first priority, Kevin McCarthy announced that Republicans would refuse to raise the debt ceiling unless Democrats agree to massive cuts in Social Security and Medicare. Not only that, they promised, if they didn't get all the spending cuts they wanted, they were also willing to shut down the government. That threat alone sent shutters through Wall Street and led many economists and commentators to warn that by refusing to raise the debt ceiling and or shutting down the government, Republicans would trigger a massive domestic and global recession. One of the strongest voices warning of the danger of the games that House Republicans are playing with the debt ceiling joins us on today's podcast. She's Catherine Rampell, columnist for The Washington Post, economics and political commentator for CNN, and contributor to the PBS NewsHour. Catherine Rampell, I love you on The Washington Post, and it's uh, good to welcome you to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So here we are again. Uh, last Thursday, the United States government ran out, ran out of enough money to pay our bills. Uh, we're already operating under extraordinary measures. Should Americans be worried about this? I'm worried <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> All right. Um, so to be clear, we ran out of the ability to con- to continue raising our debt. Um, there's a statutory limit on our debt. However, our bills continue to come due. Um, and these are bills that Congress has passed, had already agreed to through previous mm-hmm. spending and tax decisions. That's why we need to continue borrowing to make good on those IOUs, essentially. Um, and so we ran out of the ability to, to basically borrow more money um, to do that. Uh, above and beyond whatever the the mark is, uh, thirty one trillion or something. Um, however, that doesn't mean we we are you know imminently defaulting or that mm-hmm. we have defaulted on our yeah. debt. Basically, Treasury can engage in some accounting gimmicks to kind of like move money around from this agency to that agency or not make payments into various government uh, worker pension savings, healthcare funds, stuff like that. I mean, eventually they will have. To, the, the government will have to pay into those things. Um, but in the meantime, they can kind of engage in some of these gimmicks to avoid defaulting on our debt. Now, they're basically trying to buy time. Uh-huh. How much time we have is a little bit in question. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had said probably we have through June. Uh, if there's a recession, however, and that could happen, 
um, that could presumably change the timeline because if you have a recession, usually tax revenues fall. Mm. Uh, and so if you have fewer dollars going into the government, that means it's even harder to make good on all of those obligations. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that that ideally should have been dealt with yesterday. <laughs> right. Uh, second best time to do it would be today. And yet it seems like little progress has been made toward um, preventing a possible default, which would be very, very bad for reasons we can get into. What, yeah, what are the, what are the consequences, particularly for the average American? What are the consequences if we do default? So there are a bunch of bad things that would or could happen. Um, most immediately, the government would have trouble paying its bills. So that means everything from like paying military service members, sending out social security checks, paying hospitals that, um, you know, have Medicaid or Mer Medicare patients, et cetera. It means uh, having difficulty paying off our bondholder. So anybody who owns, um, you know, U.S. Treasury debt. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people who are expecting money to come in wouldn't get it. So that's like the most immediate thing. Um, additionally, you know, this would technically violate the Constitution, which says that the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Um, no biggie there. Uh, you know, whether that affects <laughs> people's day-to-day -day lives, we can debate, but they should be offended by that. Um, but beyond that, you know, there are sort of two much bigger, longer term problems that I'm very concerned about. Uh, one is that if the United States is revealed to be a somewhat unreliable borrower, which is not the longstanding assumption, we are believed to be the most creditworthy borrower. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. we make good on our bills. That's why, that's part of the reason why the dollar is the world's reserve currency, because people trust that, um, you know, that the U.S. government will will make good on its debt. Um, you know, our borrowing costs can go up. It will be more expensive for the U.S. government. Um, it could be more anyway for the U.S. Yeah. government to borrow because, in the same way that, like, if you're you're buying a house and you like don't have a great credit score, and um, the bank says, "Okay, we're going to charge you a higher interest rate," it's the same kind of thing. You know, like if you're if you're considered a riskier borrower, your your borrowing costs go up, which in the long run is bad for you for U.S. debt. And then there's this other problem, like where we could have a recession slash global financial crisis, <laughs> because, <laughs> um, like I said, right now. U.S. Treasuries are considered the safest of safe assets. Every other uh, financial asset is basically benchmarked against us, like we are the gold standard, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and everything else is perceived as like somewhat less, um, less safe or risk, you know, somewhat riskier. And so, if we reveal ourselves to be riskier, that kind of has this domino effect of calling into question how investors assess the riskiness of everything else. So you could you couldn't imagine that there would be like these shock waves that go through lots of other financial markets um, kind of almost automatically uh, because this thing that holds the system together that is the benchmark comes gets called into question. So I you know I don't know for sure that that would happen, but I think it is a huge risk that this would be very destabilizing to global financial markets, um, which is never a good thing. Obviously, yeah. you never want a financial crisis, <laughs> but if you're already worried about the fragility of the global economy, you know whether there's going to be a recession here in the U.S. or globally and or globally, 
um, you know, this is just like the last, the last thing you need, you know, very destabilizing. So one, one thing I wanted to clarify, and you said earlier, this is all about money. It, this is not about new spending. So this is, these are bills that we owe because Congress already spent this money or approved this spending, correct? Correct. Correct. So this is about um, decisions that Congress has passed, have already made. Um, they have already decided to spend X dollars on Social Security mm -hmm. and on um, other safety net programs and on defense and on, um, you know, what, you know, whatever else, like they've already made these decisions. Now it's just like paying off the credit card bill, essentially. Um, and it's, it's kind of a bizarre thing that we even go through this exercise. Yep. Like Congress made the decision to spend the money. Why do we then make to have to have <laughs> them make another decision to like agree to pay off the debt? Um, it's this archaic thing, um, that has been around and has whatever, purpose the debt ceiling initially served, you know, like a hundred years ago, clearly it does not serve anymore. The only reason I think it stays around is, well, some combination of like inertia and that it's a very useful hostage to periodically take um, if you are a cynical demagogue, um, because partly because it's so unintuitive and doesn't make sense. It's opaque. It's confusing, like why we have this second step um, most countries do not, to be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes it easier to sort of take advantage of um, in the sense that like, you know, demagogues can. One, one of my most yeah. deeply held beliefs is that government complexity rewards demagogues. Um, <laughs> and this is, it, it's true for like the debt ceiling. It's true for immigration policy. It's true for the filibuster and all these other arcane legislative rules. Um, but basically it, it's around so that it can, so that periodically, um, someone can force a crisis if they want to. And that's what we have now. Yeah. I was going to, your demigod, uh, rule has certainly proven true on many, on many fronts, as you point out. It, now I've seen a couple of articles lately that there, some economists are worried already, meaning they're not going to wait till June, right? That just the very threat of the economic collapse or the very threat of shutting down the government already makes things a little uncertain and unstable. Do you agree? Yes. Um, it's interesting. I feel like financial markets have been relatively complacent uh, and you haven't seen the kinds of turmoil that I think would be justified given the political landscape right now, in part because Look, we've had these brinksmanship episodes before. Oh, yeah. Including in 2011. And it was really bad then. And ultimately, one of the ratings agencies, I think it was in 2011, maybe it was in 2013, um, uh, uh, downgraded U.S. debt. Um, um, in any event, we've had several iterations of this and it got resolved, you know, so it's like, well, maybe they're just a bunch of Washington blowhards and they don't really mean um, to threaten the global financial system, et cetera, uh, the full faith and credit of the United States. You know, they're just like posturing and it'll work itself out. And I hope that is true. My fear is that it this time would be different because the Republican Party has gotten a lot nuttier since the previous brinksmanship episodes, 
you know, we before mm-hmm. there were like a, a, a couple of holdouts um, who demanded some kind of ransom in exchange for their vote on the debt ceiling. And now we have a lot more of them. We also have a Republican House um, with a leader who cannot control his caucus, as we have seen. He can't even he struggled to even get them to decide to have him lead them. And so uh, it was always going to be challenging to deal with um, with this kinds of like this kind of extortion, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to I'm going to kill the hostages unless you cut Social Security or whatever. But I, I think there is a real risk that it will be harder to keep um, the hostage takers appeased <laughs> this time around. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, like, look, I, I hope a few months from now this will be resolved. And if people come back and listen to this podcast, I will sound too alarmist. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Um, I'm worried that the opposite risk is is actually the case, that people are too complacent right now. Uh, and there's also the possibility, I guess, that there is a a group of um, what are we, whatever we call them, traditional Republicans or moderate Republicans. I think some twenty who represent districts that Joe Biden carried, right? Who may not be willing to go over the brink and might actually break with McCarthy and make a deal with Democrats just to approve the debt ceiling and move on. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that would be a, a much better outcome, certainly, than waiting until the last minute and. Mm-hmm even accidentally defaulting, which I think is another possibility. Like maybe nobody actually means to shoot the hostage, but it happens because nobody gets their act together. Um, My fear about all of this is that like some of the proposed um, off-ramps to this crisis involve like these obscure legislative pathways, the discharge petition and various other things um, that again, maybe could prevent a crisis. But as I understand it, the legislative rigmarole to get them done is like very time consuming. And so it's not something you can leave until the last minute because X number of legislative days have to go by while the, you know, for this step of the process and that step in the process. So even if there is ultimately a group of lawmakers who are willing to prevent um, you know, a default, whether they can like work backwards enough to figure out when they need to get started yeah. and whether they're motivated to do it. I don't know. Um, so I, I just feel like there are, there are too many ways this can go wrong. There, there are ways it can go right, but there are a lot of ways it can go wrong. And I would really like to see, um, this resolved quickly. Now, as you said a little earlier, uh, we've seen this movie before, right? <laughs> like yeah. How many times I remember the famous Newt Gingrich government shutdown. Um, wh- when that happens, when one side refuses to blink or refuses to give, refuses to, to compromise, forces a government shutdown, uh, who gets the blame? Doesn't it, isn't it always the party that forces a shutdown that ends up getting the blame? Well, so, okay, so two things here. One is that there's a difference between a government shutdown and a default. And I feel like they've kind of, they've often been mentioned in one breath Mm -hmm. and neither is good, but a default is way worse. And we actually, we have not defaulted on our debt 
in history. We have shut down the government yeah. and that'll be things or shut down parts of the government, right? It'll be like national yeah. parks are closed mm-hmm. or whatever. Non-essential services are closed. Um, and that's annoying and it ends up being costly. Um, but, and, and it makes us, it, I think it's, I think it's embarrassing, frankly, it doesn't make us look great, <laughs> but it is not the same kind of Armageddon that would result if there is a default. A default is not just that the government shuts down, but we like cannot pay our bondholders. We cannot, we do not have enough cash flow. It's not that it's like, we do not have enough cash flow to get stuff paid off. That is that we are obligated, legally obligated to pay off. That is much, much worse for all the reasons I was talking about before, you know, Hmm. recession, financial crisis, constitution, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, So, so that's one thing that I want to say up front in terms of who gets the blame. I mean, my view is the, if there's like a bomb that goes off, whoever lights the fuse on the bomb <laughs> should get the blame. Um, whether that actually happens, I don't know. Because like I said, this this whole thing is very confusing, like what the debt ceiling is and what it does or doesn't do. Um, people think that it's about new spending. It's not. As we've been saying over and over again, it's about old spending. Um, so I think it's really hard for the general public to... Um, to correctly assign blame <laughs> for mm-hmm. something that's that's legitimately confusing. Um, and I think that there are a lot of politicians who will take advantage of that fact. Um, you know, that the more, again, like the, the more complexity there is in government, the easier it is for demagogues to exploit. And go. so, um, so I, I'm not sure. And I don't know who, who will, you know, ultimately get blamed by the public. And I worry that, Republicans have been kind of laying the groundwork to blame Democrats by saying, oh, well, we just want to negotiate. Why won't Biden negotiate Mm -hmm. over this thing? Um, And then you hear a lot of members of the media saying, well, of course, it's divided government. They they should negotiate. How can Biden refuse to negotiate? My feeling about all of this is, yeah, the, the the space for negotiating over spending and tax decisions is in the annual appropriations process. Like we already have a right. thing where in divided government, they're supposed to come to a compromise about how much spending there is or what the tax code looks like or whatever. Um, that happens every year. They have not so far. Lawmakers have shown relatively little interest, including when Republicans had unified control of government in reducing spending or raising tax revenues, blah, blah, blah. Um, There is an opportunity to do all of that. That doesn't mean it should happen at the expense of blowing up the global financial system. I wrote something recently saying it's it's a bit like if Republicans said, unless you cut Social Security, we're going to blow up the, the Washington Monument. I think if Biden said, no, we're like we're not going to negotiate <laughs> under those conditions. You know, we don't negotiate with with terrorists. I think people would be like, oh yeah, obviously, like the Washington Monument has nothing to do with Social Security. Let them negotiate. Or let's let let them discuss Social Security, but like leave the, you know, this unrelated destruction out of it. That's basically what's going on here, except because it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, because debt limit. You know, we're talking about debt. We're talking about the debt limit again. Like people think that they're all like about future spending, I think people don't realize that this is a, a quite a rational stance for Biden to hold to say, no, we're, we're not going to like have these hostages taken over these, you know, in the midst of having these discussions about the budget. Um, people don't get that. And so you hear people in the media kind of re- echoing these Republican talking points, like, why won't they just negotiate? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and again, I, you know, I think it's reasonable for the general public to be confused about what the debt limit is and how it works, what it does or doesn't do, because it it's not intuitive and people ha- have busy lives. The media, I hold to a different standard. Our job is to understand these things and to, you know, um, know when you're kind of being BSed. Um, so all of which is to say, I think Republicans are trying to lay the groundwork to blame Democrats uh, if they're if the bomb goes off, whose fuse they lit. But I'm not sure they will be held accountable because the the subject is so um, confusing and because the media has not done a great job explaining it to the public. Our guest today on the Bill Press Pod, Catherine Rampell from the Washington Post. We're talking debt ceiling. Uh, and I want to get into it, Catherine, to take a quick break here and then get into this. Why are we going through this game all over again? Isn't there an easier way out? Uh, we'll get into that after we come right back here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Catherine Rampell brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. Over 330,000 strong firefighters and paramedics in the United States and Canada, members of the Firefighters Union under General President Edward A. Kelly. They're on the front lines every minute of every day protecting American families. We salute our brave firefighters. Thank them for their service. Thank them for keeping us safe. And thank them for the support, longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back today. Our guest, Catherine Rampell, she's a, a great columnist for The Washington Post, also a frequent contributor to CNN and to the PBS News Hour. We're talking basically debt ceiling. Uh, so, Catherine, welcome back. And uh, I want to suggest there's another way out. I'm not the first one to suggest it. Um, Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen has said, why don't we just abolish the damn debt ceiling? Because it's an artificial thing. Congress, which adopted it, could just abolish it, right? Why do we need it? Uh, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, I've written many times that I think that this is an extraneous thing, like whatever whatever function it served when it was first created, which as I understand it was actually about making it easier for treasury to borrow, not harder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wh- whatever function it once served does not exist anymore. The only reason it is around now is some combination of inertia and again, it being a valuable hostage to take periodically. Um, we do not need it. Most countries do not have this kind of thing in place. It's like when you make the decision to spend the money, you make the decision to spend the money. You don't then you don't make the decision to spend the money and then like later on say, mm, maybe we're not going to actually make good on that commitment. We should get rid of it. Um, you know, Biden himself was asked about abolishing the debt limit sometime in the fall. And he said, no, we shouldn't do it. Like we should have a debt limit. And I mm. thought this was like, 
an unbelievable, this was like such an unforced error um, where he surely knows that we don't need this thing. Again, it's like this additional obstacle to pay off existing bills. It, it has no purpose other than to cause problems. Mm-hmm. But there's so much confusion. Again, I keep on coming back to the fact that there's so much confusion about it Boy. that yeah. If he, if there's a soundbite of the president saying, get rid of the debt ceiling, that will get distorted into, oh, well, Democrats want to like add as much debt as they can and Republicans don't, Mm -hmm. which is not actually what we're talking about. I mean, to be, to be clear, I do think that the country has long-term fiscal challenges that should be addressed. Nobody really seems to be interested in figuring out how to do that because the Mm -hmm. fixes are probably unpopular. They involve like raising taxes or or changing how benefits are distributed um, or cutting defense or whatever. Um, but nobody's really interested in talking about that. It's like all we're everybody's sort of talking past what the issues are and just operating in this world of like an, an imagined alternative version of what the debt ceiling is and what it does because, you know, everybody's – I feel like politicians have given up on um, the public – accurately understanding what we're talking about, which is a very sad place to be. So here's another option, which you cited earlier, uh, and that's the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which says, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. So under that, couldn't Joe Biden just say, I I don't care what you do, the Constitution requires me to pay our bills and I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I have heard lawyers make this argument, mm-hmm. and candidly, I do not feel like I have the legal chops myself to assess <laughs> um, whether you know what constitutional paths are available. I mean, it, it, if you if you read the Constitution at face value, it says the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. Um, this certainly seems to be questioning it, but if we if we fail to pay off those debts and declare them invalid, essentially. But I don't know, you know, like how the courts would respond to such an argument. I don't exactly understand who has standing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard different arguments about like who has standing, you know, does, does Biden, does the executive have standing? Do the bondholders, like who who would actually be able to say like, this is a violation of my constitutional rights? Um, so I, I don't know. I think there are a lot of big unknowns about how such a legal argument would go. I'm much more comfortable like weighing in on what are the economic consequences um, right. because I just I don't sufficiently understand the, you know, the legalities and I'm not sure really anyone does. Well, you and I can leave that to the constitutional scholars to sort out. <laughs> there you <right>? go. <laughs> there you now, go. now in your most recent column, the most recent one that I've read in the Washington Post, you raise a point about so we're hearing all of this about oh God, we're spending so much money, the deficit's getting so big, we can't just raise the deficit. Or suddenly, fiscal conservatism has reared its ugly head again. That's not always the case, is it? No, no. <laughs> um, as I said, there are some real um, fiscal challenges that the country faces, and they largely relate to our demographic cha- trends. Um, you know, the country's aging, birth rates have been declining, and meanwhile, our um, like our entitlement system is structured around a bunch of other, a bunch of different assumptions. There are long-term fiscal challenges, but nobody is actually interested in dealing with those things. When Republicans had unified control 
of government uh, for a couple of years under Trump, they showed no interest in dealing with these challenges. Instead, they added more to the debt through and, a tax and, cut. Yes. And raised and raise the debt ceiling at least twice. They, maybe yes, they three times. I, I think three times, yeah. if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. Um, so, you know, they, but again, the debt ceiling is not about authorizing new spending or um, reducing revenues. It's a separate, it's, it's so unintuitive. They, but aside from that, aside from like never making a fuss over raising the debt ceiling, they actually, Trump himself, before COVID hit, signed into law, I think it was $4. trillion in new debt. By new debt, I mean um, uh, additional costs, essentially, above and beyond what the country was already on track to borrow based on previous law. So this is through the tax cut from 2017. This is through um, several rounds of additional of, of massively increased spending that Trump signed into law. So for whatever reason, um, <laughs> listeners can speculate, Republicans seem to have no qualms about um, increasing spending, about cutting tax revenues, and thereby making deficits and debt worse while a Republican was president. Um, however, once a Democrat ent- entered the White House, suddenly um, those deficit hawks uh, came out of hiding and decided now they were really very concerned about the nation's fiscal health. And now they're going to make a stink about it and, and not only make a stink about it, but like take hostages. Um, so, yes, I, I don't believe that, they're, <laughs> that they have any... Um, good faith intention of dealing with this because when when they had the opportunity to um, to make these kinds of changes, they didn't do it. Maybe because they know that they're unpopular, right? Mm-hmm. Like if right. you're threatening to raise taxes or um, change the Medicare system or whatever, that is probably not going to win you a lot of friends. So you'd rather bring it up when the other guy's in charge. Um, but re- regardless, I think there's very little genuine interest in dealing with these. Uh, well, I want to give you props for comparing them to the cicadas, right, that we deal with here in Washington, <laughs> which crawl under the ground <laughs> and then pop up on schedule. But on schedule for them is, as you pointed out, when a, a Democrat's in the White House, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's not regularly every 17 years. You mentioned raising taxes. Uh, I've got to ask you one idea that's floating out there right now. Again, these are Republicans in the House who are now, uh, apparently, they have made a deal with uh, the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, there that there will be a vote on the House floor for a proposal to abolish the IRS, abolish the income tax, and replace it with a 30% federal sales tax. Uh I'm sure my own bias. Like, is this the craziest idea you ever heard of, or does it make any sense at all? Um, so I think there's an element of it that is reasonable, which is that most countries in the world have a value-added tax, mm-hmm. um, not a sales tax. They're similar, uh, but a value-added tax can be structured so that it is like self-reinforcing. You don't need as many kind of tax cops on the beat because of the way it's implemented. Like there's an incentive to make sure that the people you buy from pay their taxes so that you have pay fewer taxes, things like that. So there, there is an, 
there's a teeny tiny kernel that is a useful idea to pursue, but it's not actually anything remotely similar to what they have proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, most countries in the world have a value-added tax, but that's not their only tax. <laughs> um, a value-added tax is is on its own pretty regressive. Um, so if you wanted to have a regressive meaning that it, it, it imposes essentially a heavier burden on poor people than on rich people mm-hmm. relative to what they make. Um, and so I think there are economists out there who are like, well, we could have a value added tax and then offset the regressivity of it by like rebating a bunch of money back through the income tax system to lower income people. Mm-hmm. And then it wouldn't be as problematic. Um, but again, like this is like this completely different, elegant solution that has bears no resemblance to what Republicans are proposing. What they're proposing is a regressive system with no tax cops on the beat. Um, so not only like will yeah. there be, you know, um, essentially, depending on how the math works out, like probably a big tax cut to rich people. Also, no one enforcing uh, the, you know, no one actually making sure that those taxes are getting paid. Um, so I, you know, I think this is not a serious proposal. Um, separate and apart from all of that, you know, they they hate the IRS. They've been right. working to defund the IRS. They, in fact, they did effectively mm-hmm. uh, defund the IRS in, in the wake of the Tea Party Revolution in 2010. Um, in subsequent years, um, re- Republicans succeeded in gutting the IRS, slashing its uh, its uh, resources, which led to much less enforcement, much worse customer service as well. You know, just try calling and getting anyone on the phone at the IRS. It will be very, very frustrating. Um, So, you know, all of those things have been bad for both voluntary and and involuntary compliance, probably, meaning that like if you want to abide by the law, it's very frustrating to figure out how the law works because you can't get anyone on the phone. If you don't want to abide by the law, it's probably easier for you to cheat because audit rates have gone way down, particularly for uh, big corporations and higher income people. Uh, So this is part of the reason why Democrats last year, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, invested $80 billion in the Internal Revenue Service, about half of which was for enforcement, you know, to sort of like... Uh, return to their previous capacity, essentially, in uh, at the very least, in being able to audit people like Donald Trump, uh, people with very complicated tax returns and armies of accountants and attorneys who can help them um, either avoid or evade taxes, uh, as well as money to invest in customer service and in upgrading their IT, which with the which the IRS also desperately mm-hmm. needs. The Republicans, their first order of business, essentially, um, after uh, first failing to elect a speaker and then finally getting a speaker, was to try to defund the IRS, which will disproportionately help rich people, frankly. Um, That hasn't gone through the Senate, but that was their – that the House passed this legislation. Uh, And finally, we'll let you go. I just want to ask you, what is your take as you look broadly across the – nation these days. What is your take on the state of the American economy today? You know, we hear a lot of mixed reports, uh, inflation looming, recession around the corner, economy weak or strong or coming back. What's your read? 
So I think the chances of recession this year remain high, or at least higher than they are in most years. If you look at surveys of economists, for example, uh, there was a survey from the Wall Street Journal. They, they regularly poll a group of economists. I think the majority were expecting a mild recession this year. I don't think a recession is inevitable, but I, I do think the chances are high. Um, hopefully, if there is a recession, it will be relatively mild. I mean, the good news is inflation numbers have come in much better than expected, and certainly better than they were several months ago recently, uh, meaning that prices are still going up, but they're not going up as quickly as they had been. And the reason why that's good news is that if inflation were continuing to get worse and worse and worse, the Fed would probably have to raise interest rates even more aggressively than it's already been doing. And that's the biggest risk of tipping us into recession that they, that they, you know, the medicine basically kills the patient. So because inflation has been a little bit milder recently, the hope is that the Fed doesn't have to act quite as aggressively. And so we can get out of this um, inflationary period without putting a lot of people out of work, without having a recession. Uh, I think there is a pathway to, mm -hmm. what, this is what the Fed calls the soft landing. I think it is possible. I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's definitely going to happen. I don't know that it's definitely not going to happen. Um, I think there are reasons to be concerned. And I think in the meantime, policymakers should be preparing for the possibility um, that we don't have a soft, that we have a so-called hard landing, even if we're hoping for a good mm -hmm. outcome, I think that they should be preparing, you know, by by fixing our our unemployment system and states, you know, conserving revenue rather than giving out more tax cuts, et cetera. I think that they should be preparing for a pos the possibility of a bad outcome, which they aren't, unfortunately. Uh, and with those uh, words of warning uh, and uh, a little bit of optimism, uh, we thank you again, Catherine Rimpa. Where can people follow you uh, other than in the Washington Post? So you can sign up for alerts to my Washington Post column. If you go to my my page on the Post, mm -hmm. you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my uh, handle is at C R A M P E L L. My first initial last name, Crampell, C Rampell. Um, and I'm also periodically on CNN, the PBS NewsHour, Marketplace, uh, a bunch of other outlets that uh, that give me the honor of appearing, including yours. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. Thanks for all your good work. We'll talk again soon. And keep our fingers crossed on the economy and on the debt ceiling. Thank you. Me too. And that's it for today's podcast with Catherine Rempel. Uh, well, good luck to uh, Chuck Schumer and Akeem Jeffries for uh, saving the government from the ravages of House Republicans and their attempts to shut down the government. Uh, we'll talk about that and a whole lot more with a group of reporters on Friday's roundtable. Uh, big question is, will George Santos still have a job by Friday? Will Kevin McCarthy still have a job by Friday? Will Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff end up on the Intelligence Committee or not? Lots to dig into on the Friday Roundtable. Don't miss it. Meantime, have a great week. Come back and see us on Friday for our Roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.